0: Today, we are speaking with Safia Qureshi, CEO and founder of Cup Club. Welcome to the podcast, Safia.
1: Hi, James. Good to be here.
0: Fantastic. So, to start with, could you tell us a little bit about Cup Club?
1: Cup Club is a company I founded in 2015. I spun it out of my agency, and it was to come up with a, a grand scheme to allow us to consume, I mean, starting with me selfishly, to consume on-the-go food and beverage without having to use any form of single-use packaging. So I was very passionate about building a more sustainable way to distribute food and beverage, and I thought there needs to be a better way than what we are currently doing. And so I started with the drinks industry because it's by far one of the highest volume in consumption of single-use packaging. And I, you know, since then have been working with some major brands and retailers to make this a scalable opportunity for takeaway.
0: Understood. Yeah. So it spun out of the agency. So was there like an opportunity to work on single use packaging that inspired it or how did exactly did that kind of come about?
1: Well, I mean, by accident, I would say, as the best things do. If I had like a crystal ball, I'd love that. I set up the agency really with a really open brief. I think that's probably why. So my background is I'm an architect, I'm a designer. I had done a lot of work in the city and I really wanted to work on more systemic problems, problems that touched everybody across, you know, social as well as environmental. I have a huge passion, obviously, for design, I have a bias for design. And I felt I could use those skills and that understanding to to really address some bigger global issues. And, you know, single-use plastics is a fairly big one. And so a Cup Club started off just purely from observing one day these four guys on a train drinking coffee, all from an identical cup, and they all were getting off at the last stop to find the nearest bin. And that sort of triggered an idea for me to think, well, instead of this single-use packaging, why can we not give people better products that they can use? And instead of this bin, why can we not drop it off to be serviced, washed, sanitized, and sent back to the retailer? Because the way that we consume, naturally, morning afternoon evenings are very much centered around meal times in general and so there's a lot of predictability and patterns that you can start to understand emerge and exist and so if you can design something that's as easy and believe me it has to be literally as easy if not easier and ways of incentivizing people to adopt something that's more sustainable then you have a fairly good opportunity there so yeah, I was very early. In 2015, you can imagine nobody was talking about this. There was no panel about single-use plastics. Most of the stakeholders that I approached were super passionate about it, but they you know, they all said the same thing. It's going to be really tough because if the consumer isn't aware of the problem, ultimately, it's not your place to A, you know, make them aware and then give them a solution. That's a very difficult task for a founder. You have to come to a market that is already engaged and inspired. So that kind of actually gave me a bit of time because like I said, it was accidental. I had no understanding of packaging. I had absolutely no understanding of technology or digitalization in that way, in that capacity. I certainly didn't know anything about plastics. I really loved what the work of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation at the time was doing, and they were also very emerging. So I could see that things were going to move a certain way, but they were just not necessarily moving as fast. So I treated that time, the downtime, as an opportunity to scale up and an opportunity to design and build and do all of the things in my capacity to really inform me and what the proposition would be. So it was actually a nice grace period. It was a really interesting, unknown territory as well, which brings with it a lot of fear and uncertainty. But I did find it very rewarding to have had that opportunity to just come to it with a lot of thinking.
0: I understand. And so during that time, were you kind of prototyping the early cup or preparing it for potentially scaling on the road or what did that exactly look like
1: so we put together what you usually do is the whole user experience research side starting from the consumer and understanding the landscape of the issue so you know how big is this market why do people currently use what they use Would they prefer something better I've always been a big believer in empathy when it comes to designing and just thinking through all the various stakeholders that are going to be a part of this user journey. So obviously end user, but then also retailer. So observing why, you know, why do baristas love single use? What are the things that are so fantastic about it operationally and really sort of not trying to ignore those points because they work. And this is a, a very well developed industry around certain products and if you want to try and swap them out, the level of optimization required simply because of the speed with which things move really has to be thought through. So empathetically looking at baristas, people who are serving in fast food, retail, just you know understanding order times, in a fraction of seconds, things like that, and then moving through the whole landscape map. So... Also observing, you know, waste companies, what are they doing collecting some of this? What is their investment in this? So if something like Cup Club was to come around, what would be their reaction? You know, there are enablers and there are businesses that will challenge you along the way as well. So there's a lot of consideration to be made. And of course, if you're, I'm an architect, so I'm very well versed with working with people who don't want to be in the same room quite usually, you know, planners, engineers.
0: They want to put that pillar down in the middle of the beautiful design, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone's trying to make sure that the form of their vision is a, accepted, but then implemented. And so, you know, everyone's coming at this with their own vested interests. And usually the architect is trying to balance all the voices in the room because our ultimate aim is to design for well being. So, you know, we want to make beautiful spaces. We want to make, you know, people healthy, environments healthy. You know, that's our aim. So bringing everybody together in that common vision it's something that we're used to, but this is of course different moving parts, which I had to understand a bit better.
0: And so in terms of getting that understanding, were you like sitting in the likes of a Starbucks and taking notes and with a stopwatch kind of thing?
1: Absolutely. And I actually put a really interesting team together in the early stages to kind of just research very thoroughly for the first six weeks, for six to eight weeks, we synthesized all of these observations. And this is across all of those stakeholders. Then we actually culminated in producing some samples and test products that we then put into the London Design Festival and invited in public to come and see it and give us their feedback. So we wanted to engage people with this idea, this concept, and in real time, just see, you know, what are their reactions, not giving them a lot of time or information, just confronting them with something. Oh, we've got another option here. Would you like, so we did actually this pop up where you could get takeaway without single use. And we just, you know, kept going at this and observing things like, I mean, there's data points that you find, which are very hard to understand from a cultural perspective, because as long as you you design a product around a culture movement, you simply will be able to ride along this wave. But identifying that culture and the nuance is something that requires a lot of observation. So you do that very quietly. It's harder to get that sort of data if you've put people in a room and paid them Or if you've prepared them with some material, they'll come at it with certain biases or they'll say things like, of course, I'll be willing to pay five pounds extra for this subscription. And then the ultimate answer is no, (laughs) I'll be willing to pay five pounds for an additional subscription. So, yeah, there's a lot of those aspects to understand. And so we we boiled all that down. We did a series of pop ups and then that led us to small pilots, which then led us to bigger implementation, and then we got some funding, and then we scaled, and yeah, it's kind of building blocks.
0: Understood. And then you, you mentioned four or five years ago, you know, this was not really top of a lot of people's mind. What are the major changes you've seen in the last five years? Is it mostly driven by the consumer or large enterprises?
1: That's a very good question. So, I mean, it takes a village, I would say, in the same way. So if you think of it from the highest level with the Alan MacArthur Foundation setting a really interesting vision for the circular economy, and then you you come down to, so that's kind of the more NGO-specific. NGOs have been talking about this for many, many decades, but we had one that was dedicated specifically around... Optimization of products, reusability. Then you also, alongside that, had figures like David Attenborough, who, out of the blue planet, very revered. But this is directly to consumer, creating a fantastic platform to create awareness. People, you know, very much have been, I mean, they're generations born with with his voice in your mind when it when, when, you are, when you're when we're watching nature documentaries, it's really strange to watch anybody else's narration against any kind of nature documentary. We, you know, I think maybe millennials are a generation who've been brought up with that. So when you hear a voice like that tell you things that you're not really expecting, in 2017, we saw this almost like this way awakening of consumer conscience, awareness, and that led to a lot of corporates starting to realize that they had to make a change. So the problem was always very evident when it came to the corporate side. So every business operating in this space was very fully aware of recycling rates, pollution crisis. That was something that they all knew about, but they just didn't do anything. And the argument would be perhaps to say that, well, consumers want this. And so in 2017, the moment that happened, we saw this immense backlash. And that culminated in a lot of things moving a lot faster for us and you know, the economy in general when it came to consumer packaging.
0: So you've already seen that alignment between like, you know, consumers, the shareholders who are then putting the pressure on the large enterprise to you know, actually take action on the things that they've recognized for 30 years as being issues.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Without the consumer awareness piece, that would not have moved.
0: Understood. And so thinking then, it sounds like large companies, because I believe in general, you're working with the kind of larger multinationals. Is that the case? Or are you also working with kind of smaller users of cups, of disposable cups? cups?
1: Oh, we are. So our approach was to always is to create the maximum amount of impact. So we strategically pick up products. So we're looking at food and beverage because we know that the top five to 10 most polluting items are bottles, cups, plates, cigarette butts, and chewing gum. Those are too small format for us. And so we're targeting those products. We know specifically if you look at brand audits, What kind of brands represent the highest amount of volume in production? And so if we want to create the highest amount of impact, we're obviously going to want to work with those brands and help. So yes, so today we work with a diverse number of major corporates. Every anything from food service, major food service companies, airports, and some of the big Fortune five hundred brands. And it is a you know it takes a village. It is a kind of a, a systemic problem. One could argue that there are many of these points that you have to work across. It's not just. You know, you sort of, you can't just produce a product and bring it to the market. You do have to prepare the consumer and make them aware of how it might be different, how you engage with it, what to expect, what are the incentives. So there are many pieces of the puzzle, but it's just become so much easier because the demand has increased from the consumer side for more sustainable products, things that have more transparency around them. And so that makes my life easier as a founder when I have to sit with brands and talk to them and understand their their needs. And I empathize myself as a company owner and I also empathize as a consumer myself.
0: And those large brands, are they typically creating the packaging in-house, right? That massive scale or are there third-party packagers that they are buying from? And so like, are you, are you in essence competing with internal processes or like true blue old school kind of competitors that are out there in the world
1: that's a good question so yeah there's most certainly you have if i'm kind of describing the landscape you have typically in in food and beverage you have the material suppliers so they will be the raw materials plastics etc you'll have the manufacturers so the ones who are producing at volumes the various formats for packaging, so rigid plastics or plastic lined paper. And then you have the brands who will purchase that. So the brands themselves don't make the packaging per se, but they, they will order it specific to their needs. So they, that, that's kind of how it works. The brands will then be working with some form of waste company that might be collecting that product, sending it for recycling and their interest might be or might not be to try and obtain the recycled material so that that can come back into their supply chain. And then mixed in the middle sometimes are distributors who might be moving the product from the manufacturers to retailers depending on their size. So that's kind of like the linear economy. Businesses like us come along and we say to a retailer or a brand, we're saying, okay, we're going to produce a fraction of the products because they're going to be in reuse. We're going to design them for durability. We're going to optimize it and track each item as opposed to on a skew basis. So, you know, you don't need to know how many chocolate bars you've sold. You need to know where your items are. So we will do that on a per item basis. And then we will integrate this into your existing technology system. So, geographically, you might be in you know, emerging markets where you don't have any form of technology, which is fine. We can create a dumb system in your retail option all the way through to more developed markets where you have you know, everything from apps to API for payments, et cetera, et cetera. So depending on the scale, you can still have a consistency of a service like ours all the way from you know, West Coast US through to Japan and anywhere in between.
0: I and So thinking about the specifics of the logistics, like what is the, you know, from a cup, a cup club created and that entire life cycle? How does it interact with the brand, with the consumer? And all, I suppose what's the whole chain look like from your point of view?
1: So products are manufactured and distributed depending on regions. So if it's uh, UK and US, those are the two areas of operations beverage containers of varying sizes. So we have everything from eight ounce up to twenty ounce. And we we essentially once it's in circulation, it will make its way to a retail outlet. The retailer will set it up internally and a customer will come in to order, they get the option for reuse. And it's at that moment, depending on, you know, varying degree of technology requirements in store, instead of taking away a single use, they take this reusable. When they're finished, they drop it back to any of the drop points network that we are servicing across the city. Those are usually in stores or entrance to major public banks or airports, for example. And you drop it back into one of those drop points and that's your customer journey finished. We collect all of that and bring it back to our washing depot where it's sanitized, washed, dried, and then sent back to the retailer. And so typically each product has a life cycle. I mean, it's designed for a thousand uses, but we've anticipated 250, so it'll be used 250 times, then it goes into end of life, so we then bulk collect them, bale them, and then when they've reached a certain capacity, we send them for recycling. And both our products that we use for materials are your main, most highly valuable and recyclable plastics within, within the ecosystem. So we had to design materials that also had a reusability, and had a high value for some of the brands that we're working with so that ultimately they could potentially use that for their own manufacture if they want to. So we have these two options. We have the white-labeled products, as well as the opportunity to provide certain standardized parameters for a brand to develop their own so it fits into the system.
0: And the the cops themselves, they can handle you know, hot, cold temperatures. Yes. There's no kind of restrictions on that. You can use it for, you know, your espresso, et cetera.
1: Yeah. No, it works either ways. So they're very versatile. They're very lightweight. We had to think about inclusivity. So we had to pick materials that were, you know, with liquid, if you imagine having to carry them around town, they need to be pretty lightweight so that there are no restrictions for people. And we also try and avoid putting deposits on products because we find that that becomes a, an emotion, well, a psychological barrier to buying things. If you feel that the pricing is significantly higher on a per item basis, even if you know you might get that deposit back, it can sometimes affect your your buying capacity. So there, there are ways that we do that. We use tracking information so that you can just save payment. And if you don't return it, we can take that cost from you later on. So it's essentially no deposit required whatsoever. And it's a free service.
0: Understood. So is it the consumer that pays for the cup or the the brand? The brand. Fantastic. So you're avoiding a lot of the problems where you're trying to get mass consumer adoption of a particular kind of sustainability practice.
1: Yes. And also, I mean, the thing is, like, ultimately, it's the brand that needs to shift their targets to zero waste. So designing this solution for them is what they are looking for. They want everybody's got different timelines that are set up. Some are 2025, some are 2030. And so we would we would sit with them and say, well, what is your brief? What are your requirements? Let's put this into your supply chain and scale this operation for you so that the consumer just walks in. They don't they don't have anything else to prepare for. They just get given an option in the same way as, you know, takeout or dining, just get given the option there.
0: And looking at your website, you actually put up your sustainability report from a couple couple years ago. And I absolutely love the transparency. I mean, I think, you know, being more more transparent than very large multinationals who have, you know, 200 people in their sustainability team. So we're going to ask a couple of questions around that. So you mentioned it's about 200 reuses. Around like how many reuses does it kind of meet the same carbon impact of disposable cups?
1: Sixty six. So one thing to explain is the methodology for the LCA here. And what we are—we're one of the first to do it, and so I, you know, happy to happy to publish it and lead by example. So the methodology is very much following that journey of the product. So from from the material selection through to manufacturing, shipment to whichever geography it is in. Obviously, we've calculated that to the UK. And then set up for where it's uh, docked, essentially. So where our depot is, the wash process, how it gets to a retailer, how it gets used, and then collected back into a vehicle and brought back to the depot to be washed again. That then multiplied by whatever its lifespan is. So in our documentation for LCA, it was actually a lot lower conservative amount of 132. So it's that entire journey times 132, and then it's end of life. So that includes your mechanical... And chemical processing back to material that is our methodology and that is following essentially the entire you know emf reuse cycle so you have to factor in the product but it's full reuse and that's how you get to a 66 break even for our product when you compare it to the equivalent that it's offsetting and the equivalents are a number of different ones so one is plastic lined paper which you see in abundance for any form of drinks or liquids. Then also a plant-based liner instead of plastic. So there are many examples I'm sure you're aware of. And then a third was also actually to look at ceramics. So in slightly smaller volumes, you can see comparisons to that. So that's how we then calculated the equivalent of the number of uses for a single use, so if it's 132 reuses, it's 132 equivalent of those single use. And then you compare the data out of those two. And then you see where the breakeven is. Where those two lines cross is the breakeven, which for us is 66. After 66, we're saving on carbon. If you break it down on a per-use basis, we use 50% less CO2. And so once we get a lot of these operations up, we already are able to share the data on savings for CO2, energy, paper, plastic, waste, water with customers because we've essentially calculated on a per use basis what the saving is out of that 132. So we've turned it into a single unit metric, which aggregates. So if they're you know, ordering 50,000 units a day, 50,000 multiplied by that single unit will tell them how much they're saving.
0: Understood. And a lot of these large companies have made these you know, decarbonization of their supply chain by X dates, and these kind of numbers can help them reach those kind of goals. Understood. And then in terms of, so you mentioned that it sounds like the, the manufacturing for at least the UK supply is happening in the UK. I know you have some pretty large like trials setting up in the West Coast of the US, I believe. Is that similarly going to be kind of localized manufacturing?
1: No. So our manufacturing, we, we started in the UK, we moved it to China. We tested the impact of production where it was. It made a marginal 0.1% uh, percent change because the vast majority of your impact in this space in reusability is around servicing. And when you want to break down servicing further between sanitization, washing, and logistics, so delivery and redistribution, it's the washing that uses up the most energy because of the water. So optimizing anything means optimizing the washing. And of course, geographically, we we don't put anything onto air freight because that's yeah, you're you're finished. It's just non-starter. So we put everything on ship and cargo. So we manufacture from China. It'll go to its destination. We set up our washing Depot with the same methodology of service zone as we do with any city. So the Bay Area, the entire Bay Area, we can service with our hub in Milpita's. And if you know the Bay Area, Milpitas, it's like, you know, kind of at the bottom of the U and the rest of it just goes up on both sides. So this is how we've kind of developed our methodology so that we can have a comparative impact and understand and know what that looks like anywhere we go.
0: Understood. And then could you tell me a little bit about that, some of those big trials? Because again, it sounds like very UK focused, but I think there were some big moves into the US in the last six months.
1: Yeah, it's been super hectic. And very exciting. So we have been—we were selected as one out of like four to five hundred businesses globally by the Next Gen Consortium brand. So that includes Starbucks, McDonald's, Coke, young brands, Nestle, and Wendy's. I have to say all of them, by the way. Been I've been told <laughs> can't include no, anyone. No <laughs> So it turns out into big a bit of a mouthful at the end of it. So yeah, they were excited about the opportunity to work in reuse and come up with alternatives that would enable them to improve on their supply chain, reduce their consumption, etc. We were hence invited into the opportunity to launch in the US market. So that was a good. I guess growth opportunity for us is to be led by brands that are looking for you to bring this to the U S and that's what brought us to launch in March, 2020 across the Bay area. And to test this, we collaborated with local cafes on the ground, produced the technology from software applications, testing the API functionality, the full in-store experience. We worked with IDO, who are our research team on the ground, to help us synthesize and record all the data as well. So super fun team, really exciting, and all just before COVID. So luckily, we managed to get all of that done before things got a bit hairy.
0: And that sounds like a massive kind of initiative. Mm. Just because you mentioned it, COVID, I mean, one of the aspects of COVID is probably, you know, a lack of trust in people keeping the, the required level of cleaning of, you know, everyday objects. And, you know, I've read some things that disposable items are becoming more popular again because of those pressures from covid how do you think about covid's impact on the disposable packaging
1: market i mean it's it's two ways so i think the the concerns are exactly as you said it's about safety right so how do we address safety for cup club and any other business in the reusability space is to emphasize that we're not distributing the washing at all amongst many different entities. We're not asking people to wash it themselves. We're certainly not exposing brands and their operations to any form of self-cleaning. So Cup is very much, has always kept kind of a centralized washing system that means that everything is processed under very controlled environments. As it arrives, it's emptied from our drop points, it's put through the scanning technology into our machines and out the other sides, regulated in temperature. Everything about the environment is something we control. And so when you're answering the brief is, okay, how can we create more visibility, more transparency on our operations? And that's about communication. It's not about concerning yourself with, okay, our single-use product is going to be better so we immediately just doubled down on some of those points that's how we reacted to it we we thought okay well we've always been doing this but it's maybe this is the right time to to let people know on what those measures look like and just visualizing it for them so you know the less mystery around these things the better so that's what we did which worked and significantly i mean we've heard from scientists now across globally signing papers on reuse and how if it is being done properly, there's absolutely no concern with it being something that might not be safe. So I think it's, it's more a matter of perception and perception is very much predicated on how much or how little information someone has about something. So just the more you detail, the more you visualize it for someone, I think that perception or the, you know, the way that you, that you might make your decisions will change.
0: That makes sense. And I suppose on the other kind of level, you have a lot of communities that are starting to ban disposable items like straws, like the big classic one. What are your views on that? Do you think that there will be just mass banning of disposable items at some point in the future?
1: It started already, right? Perfect. So the European legislation has I produced quite an a, an extensive documentation around the... Re, first, they started with the research, which then led them to identify key items that they wanted to phase and burn out, and then specifically a timeline against it. So exactly when and how and what the grace periods would be for different brands and businesses to adopt this. So it's not a matter of if, it's it's more a case of exactly when is this going to happen. There does need to be, I believe, uh, an additional tier. And this is something that we are very, I guess, acutely aware of and quite we discuss this quite a lot in the team is, How do we avoid the same mistakes that we have seen in the recycling industry? So we've had such an open market when it comes to production, very little. When you're developing a packaging, there's very little guidance on what material you can use for what product, for example. What material you can use where geographically, for example. Obviously, now I'm I'm coming from an industry that is so heavily regulated when it comes to you know construction architecture that everything you do is in some way shape or form has been addressed in some kind of guide, some standard, some documentation. So when I came to the packaging space, I just I was alarmed at how little there was to ensure end-of-life recyclability. And so when you're developing products, if you're sitting as a designer in one of these major FMCG brands, or you're part of the R&D team, what we want to make sure that now in reuse, we create those standards. We create guidance. We develop really clear identifiers that will, I wouldn't say limit, that's the wrong word. I think it's just... We need to have a systemic view on this so that we're not making the same mistakes with, with what we've done with recycling and this open market production. So I don't know if that answered your question.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. It did. No problem at all. And, and you mentioned a little bit earlier this kind of concept of the circular economy, and you did a great job of explaining how Cup Club engages in that. What are other areas of sustainability that you think are the next to really benefit from this circular economy concept?
1: Next to sectors. So beyond consumer packaging, et cetera. Correct. Yeah. I would say textiles. I think textiles is going to go through significant developments Um, and it already is, but I'm looking for, for it to go into something a little bit more mainstream. So I think. When it comes to the production of textiles, the way that it's made, how it's made, I mean, there are so many different implications around the entire supply chain. It's mind-boggling from a social perspective as well. You know, the slave trade behind a lot of textile manufacturing, for example. So I think, but then also end-of-life recyclability, how does that actually come back? How is it sustained into new products? So I would say textiles is one. Potentially some form of something to do with food system and food production and land use. So how, because again, I mean, we know this from our own work, you can't control consumption. You can't tell people to have less food or not to move around. You can optimize it so you can build better systems, better products, more efficient ways to get things moving. But we are a global economy that is growing and food production is going to be something that will have to be regenerative. The, the way that we consume water through that process um, will have to be thought through because water is going to be a scarcity as we move forward. Drinking water, I mean, not water in general. So I think those would be my two areas that I would uh, expect there to be further developments to implement. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, we're already seeing a lot of the supply chain tracking already occurring in in both fashion as well as uh, agriculture. Um, It's still probably 10 years behind where it should be, but I've definitely talked to a couple of people in that space and it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Just before we finish up here, you know, you mentioned your background in architecture and design and how that has informed your kind of work on Cup Club and and your other projects. How does your uh, growing up in London and, and living in London affect your kind of approach to things?
1: That's a good question. Maybe the thing about being an architect specifically in London is that we have one of the, well, certainly up to this point, we've had some of the best people coming through institutions, schooling, and then practice. So if you think of the likes of, you know, Zaha Hadid, late Zaha Hadid, you have all the European amazing European architects who Rem Koolhaas, Foster and Partners, you have um, a number of excellent candidates who have contributed to thinking about cities and development, so not just, you know, buildings but the fabric of how we move, master planning, what's needed, what does a future look like? So that's been a really nice thing to be a part of. I mean, right from the institution scale up through, I've, you know, I've taught at many institutions along the way as well, and really enjoyed collaborating and meeting those people. We've exhibited as well across from Venice Biennale and in Norway and a bunch of other places. So, MoMA in Copenhagen. So I would say the fact that you're geographically in a space where there's a lot of discourse, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of collaboration, that's been really rewarding. So for me, really, the city itself offers so much, but the fact that we're, you know, at a stone's throw away from cities like Barcelona, and, and you can understand the heritage and the history behind how cities have developed, urban populations have developed, cultures have developed, civilization, that's good to have as a sort of a building block to your understanding of design. So I, I would yeah I definitely have been pretty lucky with having that context. New York is one of my favorite US cities but New York is very different to a lot of the other US cities. It's probably one of the few ones for example that works when it comes to just getting around being able to move without a car whereas most US cities you just you can't really operate without one. So for me, that's like one of the most amazing cities as an example of of one that's super, you know, on, on many levels is, has has really developed up to to a high level of uh, operations.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, I definitely echo that. You know, even just the design principles of a transit and walking orientated space versus car related space. You know, so, so different.
1: Actually, yeah. So yeah, th- this has
0: been great. I really loved kind of learning about Cup Club Safia. Is there anything that I should have asked you about but did not?
1: You've done a brilliant job. I felt like I've done so much talking. You've you haven't done enough. I should probably ask you a couple of questions. I mean, where would you like to see Cup Club in the next couple of years?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a great question. One of the things I love about the concept is again this localization, right? This, the cleaning, the pickup. You have this circular economy kind of occurring on a very local basis, right? And so one of the things I see a lot in sustainability is trying to connect people to closer to them supply chains. I think that's like a really kind of powerful element. Uh, We didn't really talk about it, but I believe you also have an app that you can kind of see where the kind of drop-off spaces are. I think if people feel that they are integrated locally into sustainability efforts, they're more likely to actually engage and care. And so I think as we're seeing an app uh, and there's, you know, 2,000, Cup club locations but in you know a few blocks that's kind of one direction i also think just in general you started with cups um you know there's a lot of different types of disposable packaging that could be yes uh, moved into the other spaces so
1: and there are so we i mean there's different ways of scaling reuse we wanted to understand and build a methodology for one vertical first so get get to a point where we We tested it through the whole system, understood the commercial requirements and scalability requirements, consumer requirements, retail, and be able to get very comfortable with one vertical before moving that methodology into others. So stay tuned there is more there's more to come on that where we're expanding into new product categories it's going to be very exciting and there's a little bit of a rebrand that's going to happen as an effect of that so I'm glad we, we yeah glad you brought that up that's in the pipeline
0: amazing well let's leave it yeah. there that's a great one to leave it on and uh, thank you for your time Sophia and best of luck
1: thank you so much speak soon